Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verses 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? This is the word of the Lord. Forgot my Bible. Hold on a second. Important things. All right. Well, good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you. If you're new to North Cross, uh, welcome. What a Sunday. Um, and I'd like to invite you to email us at info at northcrosschurch.com. If you're in person, there's a welcome table out there. Grab a mug and um, some information about North Cross. If you feel so inclined, we'd love to hear from you. You can sign up and, um, and get a mailing uh, from us and get more information about where we are and what we're up to. Um, be a part of the community. And if you're here again, thanks for being with us again. It's important to come together and gather and worship, and we appreciate you being here. Well, uh, if you know anything about Presbyterianism and the Reformers, uh, those Reformed pastors, we uh, love and are heavily influenced by the life and writings of John Calvin. And there's this story, which I think is actually historical, and the story goes like this. John Calvin, uh, a couple years into his ministry, is exiled from his home and ministry in Geneva, Switzerland, and for a few years. And then he's kind of, the Genevan people reach out to him, the, the town elders, and they grab him, and they pull him back, and they say, uh, please come again. And so Calvin gets to the, that moment, and he, he mounts the pulpit for the first time to preach. And these people are going, I can't wait for a special sermon on this occasion and John Calvin, instead, in all seriousness and without a word of explanation, just picks up where he left off in the book of Psalms, where he was preaching before. Very John Calvin. Um, he's, he started the series years later, years earlier, and he's going to finish it. And I, I, I tell that story to confess that I uh, wanted to pull a John Calvin this morning. Just wanted to kind of get up here in all seriousness and without a word of explanation, just go right back into the book of Ephesians, carry on like we carry on. Um, and, but once again, uh, this week and all that has happened this week on the conversations, um, the emotions has reminded me yet again that I am not John Calvin. <laughs> uh, <laughs> shocking, I know. And I'm going to preach another standalone sermon that I think will do us a lot of good, uh, me and hopefully you all as well. So our passage this morning, is, as Holly read, is from Matthew chapter 7, and it comes from Sir Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which, contrary to popular opinion, is uh, not just primarily meant to be read as a moral to-do list. Sermon on the Mount is not just a moral to-do list. It's an invitation, really. Jesus is asking us to see the world and to see our lives in this new way with spiritual imagination. And I can think of nothing that takes more spiritual imagination than seeing God as he actually is and getting vulnerable, being open with him in prayer. And so it's my prayer that in this time of transition for me, my family, North Cross, 
that we will look to Matthew's words and see God's good, good heart, full of fatherly love for us. And so let's pray together. Father, you've given these words to us this morning for our good. And I pray that you would do good by them. We need them. We're thirsty and hungry, maybe in ways that we've never seen before. Maybe there's things that happened in the last more, few hours, let alone the last few days or weeks, where we just surprised ourselves. <laughs> I thought I was over that, or um, I can't believe I got into that, or um, what in the world is going on in the world and inside of me? And Jesus, um, you stilled the storm. You walked on the water. You made water into wine. You healed person after person while you're here on earth. You proclaimed a truth that we can't get over. And I just pray, Lord Jesus, that you would speak through this passage to all of us. Remind us again of who you are. Convince our hearts that you're more believable and more beautiful than we can imagine. We ask this in your name. Amen. Let me take you back to a pivotal moment of my life. A few years after teaching and coaching in a private school, a small private school just outside of Washington, D.C., I announced that I was going to go to seminary. And that um, and I was going to study at seminary to be a Christian pastor. And that community received that news. It was an ivy-covered coat-and-tie all boys board, like day school, and they received that news with some disorientation and confusion. In the midst of many, many awkward and very short conversations with colleagues who didn't, who were asking me what religion I was choosing, uh, I had one long, memorable conversation with a teacher named Tom. Tom was something of a living and breathing legend at this school where I was. He had taught English at that same school for over fifty, over 50 years. He had taught English there, and he was the official school historian, and he was fluent in William Shakespeare. It was pretty amazing. Tom quoted and cited Shakespeare as if the bard were his second language or even his native tongue. And Tom loved to sit in the window seat of the faculty lounge and hold forth about whatever he was reading or make witty insults using obscure puns. That was sort of his deal. And one afternoon, he suddenly paused his rambling verbal lecture, his review of the New York York Review of Books, and Tom looked up at me with his watery blue eyes as I sort of crouched, half-crouched, looking into my faculty mailbox. And Tom informed me loudly so that the rest of the teachers in the faculty lounge heard that he had heard the news. (laughs) And that I was going into ministry, in his words, becoming a man of the cloth to study holy writ. (laughs) And after a sincere congratulations, Tom proceeded to tell me about his Christian experience. And it went something like this. As a boy in North Carolina, Tom had been raised Christian, but his father was a hard man. He was an alcoholic whose drunkenness caused a lot of misery for Tom and for his family. Every day for many years, Tom got down on his knees and he prayed to God. He prayed that God, uh, that his father would stop drinking alcohol. In fact, 
His father never did actually stop drinking alcohol until his father died. And so around the age of 16 or so, well before his father had stopped drinking, Tom stopped praying. And he also stopped believing in a God who hears and cares. Instead, Tom resigned himself to a thing he called fate, with a capital F, fate. And a fate that is both tragic and unchangeable. And all we can do is endure. In lesser or greater detail, many of us share Tom's problem. Problems with prayer and with God. Some of us, like Tom, have had a bad father. And that's made life really, really hard. Or maybe we've had no father. And that's made life at least harder than it should have been. And I'm deeply sorry if that is your story here this morning. That's really hard. But many of us have had fairly good fathers. But we still find it hard to pray and to think of God as our father. Perhaps because of stories like Tom's in our own lives or maybe in the lives of other people. I like the way that a different Tom, Tom Wright, puts it. For a lot of us, it's not just difficult to pray to God for the right things. It's not just difficult to pray to God for the right things. It's difficult to pray to God for anything. It's difficult to at least pray for what we truly want because we're so, so afraid of being disappointed. And I would say at times this difficulty can be even bigger than prayer. It's, a, it's about buying into, it's difficult to buy into what God is up to in this world. Maybe even in his church. And we, don't just want, and we don't just wonder, does God care about the right things? But does God care at all? Is he doing anything about anyone or anything that I care about? Especially in times like we're going through in this church and with the drawn-out daily violence in the Ukraine and the daily drawn-out violence it feels like in our elementary schools even. But our passage today, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, is going to address these doubts and difficulties directly. And it's going to push us to where we need to go. Jesus tells us to pray how we want to pray because of who we pray to. That's really the simple what we're talking about. Jesus tells us how to pray how we want because of who we're going to pray to, our Heavenly Father. And this Father's character changes why we pray and how we live. So we're going to pray to God, and God's character changes how we pray and how we live. And really, this paraphrase of what Jesus says in this passage is just provides the logical flow and content of our outline this morning for the sermon, which is going to be projected behind you, behind me and in your e-bulletin. Verses 7 through 8, first, Jesus says how to pray. Second, in verses 9 through 11, Jesus says who we pray to. If you're a grammar scholar, to whom we pray. Just so you know, I know. And you know that I know. Still a sinner. Okay. As usual, this matter, this outline is projected behind me, and let's look first at the verses 7 through 8 and how to pray. Uh, before we start to hold up Jesus' promises and then we kind of hold them up against real life, which we're going to do, I promise, let's, take the, let's just take these promises at face value. They're familiar for mo- many of us, but it's worth kind of looking at them again fresh. In verses 7 through 8, Jesus answers our first blush, gut-level, deep questions about prayer. 
How do we pray? What do we even pray for? And Jesus gives us three simple commands. Ask, seek, knock. And he, gives, he accompanies those three commands with three over-the-top promises. You'll receive that. You'll find it. That door will open. And so what's Jesus' answer to what to say in prayer? It's pretty simple. It's also the title of a 1980s John Cusick movie. Say anything. Say anything. You see, the reason Jesus is being so simple and so over the top in these verses is to reassure us that, yes, Jesus hears our prayers. Or sorry, God hears our prayers. That God the Father hears our prayers at all. And yes, God hears all of our prayers. He hears them at all, and he hears all of our prayers. And you know why Jesus does this? Because he is fully human. And because he spent 33 years on this planet in our circumstances. He understands that prayer can sometimes feel pointless, and sometimes it can feel certifiably crazy. Prayer can feel silly, like kneeling down and up-talking to fluorescent lights. Prayer can feel like madhouse mad, like collecting grocery, plastic grocery bags and tying them on into a suit of armor and marching down the streets of your hometown, making loud speeches to an invisible friend. Sometimes prayer feels like that. And this is why in verses 6 through 7, Jesus underlines an outside-of-us fact about reality. The outside-of-us fact about reality is God hears and God cares. And again, because Jesus intimately gets what it feels like to be human, he knows how we can get caught up in our dramas and feel tangled up inside. And this is why Jesus counsels us to be oh-so-direct in our prayer life. Tell God anything that is on your minds and ask for whatever you want. Ask for what you need, even when you aren't sure you even need it. Ask for what you think you need, and ask as much as you want, perhaps even without ceasing. Ask for physical shelter, physical food, health, clothes, as individual items, or in a package deal about a request to do better in life, to get that job or that house, or really in this market, any house at all. Ask for spiritual benefits. Ask for forgiveness for that conversation. Ask for more love for a friend or for God. Or just ask for an increase in your general actual peace everywhere that's needed in your life. Again, perhaps briefly, but definitely freely and frequently, seek God and seek God's counsel. For the present day purpose, for the future tense fears, for God's presence to feel more felt in your life. Seek. Finally, knock. Knock in the tidying space of blocked relationships. Knock in the tight space of blocked goals. Knock in the blocked opportunities. 
Bring these to God. Ask God to open them up and to help you find another way. But please don't miss Jesus' biggest point of all this. In the thick of all these small, specific ways of prayer, God wants us to pray, and we get to pray about anything. He wants us to pray, and we get to pray about anything. In the words of the biblical scholar Dale Bruner, Jesus intends to buck up our wavering, unbelieving, reluctant-to-pray spirits and encourage us just to start asking. Jesus is trying to bring us by any means possible to the Father. Hands out, mouths open. God is not so divine that he shouldn't be bothered, nor are we so sinful that we shouldn't try to pray. Jesus wants us to ask. And that is, you can't bother God. God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's all-present. He can handle it. He can handle another request. He can handle you. He can handle me. He can handle all of our neediness. And you don't have to disqualify yourself. Asking in Jesus' name is all qualifying. But the real-life, real-world objections come fast and furious, don't they? (laughs) Really, Jesus? We can and should ask for anything? Really? What if I pray for humility and God causes me to bomb a presentation or fumble an important conversation or he puts me in a position where I'm a bit publicly judged? Or if I can ask for anything, why don't I just ask to be filthy rich then? Right? Or maybe worse, what if I do pray for one million bucks and like that old Geico commercial, God twists my prayers in his own special way and I get one million male deer or bucks on my lawn? What about that? And perhaps more seriously, what about my friend Tom, the Shakespeare scholar? He asked for something good, his dad to get healthy, to not be drunk all the time. And he didn't receive that request. His dad died without ever getting sober. Surely young Tom sought God about his dad. Surely he knocked on the door of heaven, yet it seems like he never found an answer. And that door was never opened. So, Jesus, where are you? In verses 7 and 8. Where are the conditions? Where are the exceptions? Where are the qualifications that we all need? Everyone? Really? What about the Ukrainian people? What about that person in my family? What about Tom? And Jesus' response those really good, hard questions, is the meat of our second point this morning. According to verses 9 through 11, it all depends on who we pray to. All depends on who we pray to. The reason we can ask for anything, the reason we can, the reason some prayers are obviously answered and some prayers are not answered, at least not obviously, or right now, the reason that Jesus can say verses 7 through 8 is because God is a good father who only gives good gifts. I'm going to ask us again to hold back our flood of questions. Just for the time being, I'll get to them. I want us first to pay attention to what he's saying here. What is Jesus saying and what is Jesus not saying in these verses about who God is? 
And I think what he's saying is this, simply. Verse 11, he tells us that God is your Father who is in heaven and who gives us good things. He gives those who ask good things. Verses 9 through 10 are just illustrating what this means in real life, real world terms. And these verses tell us that God is at least a decent, responsible father, right? Most human fathers will not intentionally harm their children, okay? Uh, For instance, when a child asks for something good, the father won't give his son or daughter something bad. Like, so if Carol or William or Millie ask for a 21st century version of bread for dinner, like let's just say mac and cheese, I won't try and trick them, right? I won't rub my hands together, go to the backyard, dig up some weeds, add some Parmesan cheese, and say, ta-da, here's your mac and cheese. You better eat it. It's not what we do. If Carol, William, and Millie ask me for a dinosaur-shaped chicken nugget, the 21st century parent version of fish, I won't try to scare them. I wouldn't rub my hands together and then grab a live, wriggling, scaly snake from the backyard and, and plop it gasping, wriggling onto a jungle plate and say, din din, here's your dino nugget, children. Enjoy. Okay? But Jesus is implying something even better than all that. Even when a child asks for something bad, a typical father won't give that child something, something bad that he or she asks for. This is the condition or qualification that Jesus is attaching to the promises of verses 7 and 8. Do you see that? If you, you see, if Carol, William, or Millie ask me for weeds from my garden instead of mac and cheese, they ask for a snake, a garden snake, instead of a dino nugget, I won't give them the weeds or the snake. Right? Or perhaps more realistically, if Carol, William, and Millie were to ask to give them watermelon-flavored Sour Patch Kids swimming in chocolate ice cream for every dinner for a whole week, just to make it obvious, I won't give them that either. Right? And neither would a lot of you in this room. And verse 11 tells our earthly fathers, like me, it says, look, people like me, fathers like me, are evil compared to God. So Jesus' argument goes, how much more good will God give when we ask? You see, God's answer to our prayers isn't just decent. They don't just, his answers to prayers don't just pass the won't try and harm you test. More than that, what God gives us and what he withholds from us too, both what he gives and what he withholds are perfectly good. God only gives good gifts. What we absolutely need, what we really actually want, every good and perfect gift comes from God. Because he is at his heart, at a character level, God is infinitely good and eternally perfect. And this statement about the nature of God and of his gifts, this passage is not a call for blind, leaping faith, okay? God has proven just how good he is, just how far he will go to give good gifts. He's made that proof historically in real life and in this real world. And maybe you know where I'm going. 2,000 years ago, God the Father gave up his very best. His only divine son, Jesus Christ. He gave him up onto a wooden splintery cross. 
He allowed Jesus to be a sacrifice in order to allow us to believe from the inside out who God actually is. God is your Father who is in heaven who gives good things. But I think sometimes we're convinced that God is holding out on us. Aren't we? I am. Because we don't see him as a father. We see him something as he's not. Let's just say we see him as a genie in a lamp. And it feels like we've run out of wishes because we're not magicians and our prayers are not magic. And of course, we all naturally want what we want instantly and all of the time. But reason with me here, okay? If God's desires for us are as wise as a father's to a child, is everyone tracking with that? He won't spoil us. He refuses. And if God's thoughts and his ways are greater than our ways, as great as the heavens is from the earth, God's ways with prayer are, ne- are not going to always make sense to us. And this should be comforting at some level because we don't have the burden of getting whatever we want. How kind is that? Our prayers are free from receiving unintended, unforeseen consequences. Whether that's the kind of side effect of horror movies that they help us imagine, right? Like, you know, asking for the family pet to come back, and all of a sudden you get Pet Cemetery, And, you know, Chester the cat, or sorry, Church the cat, comes out and, and wreaks havoc in your life, okay? Stephen King, some of you know him, some of you don't. It's okay, I said it from the pulpit. It's fine. Don't worry. In the, it'll come back to a Netflix special in the 1980s. Stranger things have happened. Okay. <laughs> Perhaps more realistically, what if you actually got your middle school prayers answered? Just think about that for a second. Sorry, middle schoolers. Um, But if you got those prayers answered, and you are now 15 or 20 years into a marriage of your first tween puberty-soaked crush, imagine what that would feel like. Thank God he spared some of you from a life with a brooding boy band singer. Some of you were spared. But seriously, imagine how you will view at least some of your prayers that you're praying right now in 10, 15, or 20 years. But when I think of the frustration and the relief and the mystery of all of this, of what it feels like to be God's child, my mind turns back in time again, back to that partly sunny faculty lounge. How would I love Tom as I want to be loved? What would I say to him? I don't have a really good answer, um, but I, wanted to, I want to answer that honest, heartfelt question. It's even in this room this morning. The question about God and about prayers or the messed up, heart-wrenching harm that happens in this world. And I've thought a lot about it. I went to seminary. I've done 13 years of ministry. I keep thinking about that conversation. And perhaps the answer that makes the most emotional sense to me comes from a story that a seminary professor told me. And I guess you'd like to hear it. It's not really interactive. I'm going to tell it to you anyway. Um, but let's do it. It's a sunny day, and my professor, Jim Cofield, was outside, and he was riding a tandem bicycle with his, with his teenage autistic son. This image already makes me laugh, or at least smile, because I picture, you've got to picture my professor. He's this huge, hairy man, a uh, tall heavy set, on a banana yellow two-seater tandem bike with a tall, thin teenager. It's a great picture already. 
And I like to think that they each had sort of matching baskets or horns, but I think I'm just making that up. I think it's just as the, the appeal. Anyway, Jim and his son are out riding on their bike, and this tandem bike, and they hit some loose gravel. The bike is already unbalanced based to the weight difference between Jim and his son, right? Their size difference, the weight difference. And so the, the, when it hits this kind of gravel, it starts to skid out of control. And it starts to fall over to the left-hand side. And Jim, realizing what's going on, starts to lean heavily with all of his weight to the right. And when he looks back, he sees Skylar leaning the opposite direction into the left. Because again, remember, Skylar's on the spectrum. And Skylar is leaning with all of his weight into the fall. And then Jim panics. And he, and he lays himself out over the bike to the right. And the meanwhile, this bike is skidding and swerving and going all sorts of crazy. And finally, Jim is somehow able to right the bike without it falling over. And he comes to a stop and he takes a moment, composes himself. And then Jim smiles back at his son, Skylar, like, whew, we really dodged a big one, didn't we, Skylar? And he's about to say something deep and profound like that when his son yells at him, why did you do that? How in the world, why in the world did you do that to me? And Jim is stunned. And he begins to like start to explain all that he did to prevent a much, much worse thing from happening, a crash from happening. You know, he's about to say like, there was gravel, Skylar, and there you are leading into the fall for Pete's sake, almost making it crash even worse. But then Jim looks over and he sees his, ton- he sees his son on the verge of tears. He realizes his son doesn't and he won't ever understand. And so instead, Jim just hugs him, and he whispers over him, I'm sorry, son. I'm so sorry that happened to us. And that's how my relationship with God so often works. (laughs) There my father is, ordering the chaos, binding up what's broken, making all things new, And there I am yelling, often inside of my own head, why did you do that? Or in the case of prayer, why didn't you do that? And God knows, he gets that impulse that we all have. He knows there was loose gravel. And he knows what I wanted, okay? And what I too often do when when I'm struggling with what I want, where I lean into the wrong direction, He sees that. And you know, God maybe thinks about explaining it to me. Except he doesn't. Most of the time. And most of the time, God reminds me that he's my dad. And he knows how hard it can be. And he loves me. So, so much. Would you pray again with me? Father, it's hard. Some of us, we're struggling with a lot. And Lord, there's ways that story works and there's ways that story doesn't work (laughs) at all. And I want to confess that. Um, But I think what it gets at is, is that it's a scary world where we're skidding around. And uh, sometimes it feels like you're asleep at the wheel 
or you're making it worse. And Lord, I, I'm, I want to be less concerned about what I'm doing, and I want to be more concerned about what you're doing. And I pray that you would help us all do that. Redirect the eyes of our hearts to you. And Lord, just like what Charles Spurgeon says, when we can't trace the outline of your hand, help us to trace your heart. And Lord, we ask this, knowing nothing else but to ask, and to seek, and to knock. In your name, Jesus. Amen.